This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. What's going on, Warriors? Welcome to another episode of Cheat Codes. This is a special episode because this is actually not a standard Cheat Codes episode. We welcome you officially to What Just Happened, the best of sickle cell conferences. Dr. Callahan, this is uh, something we've been wanting to do for a little while. For sure. And this is really a special episode. I mean, it's a little different than our normal episode, but we got a special group of people on today. Man, I agree. And I always talk about how you know, the era of innovation we're in, this is this this period is what they're gonna write about 10 years from now, 15 years from now, about when sickle cell disease changed. We're living it. Hope it's gonna be a great story. All right, so let's let's jump into some intros because we've got an all-star cast, man. We assembled the Avengers for this. And I'm gonna kick it to um, somebody who, who really needs no introduction in the sickle cell community, Dr. Lakia Bailey. Dr. Bailey, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for assembling this awesome team. I am Lakia Bailey, and I am the executive director of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, and I am excited to co-host this with you all for this amazing topic. Awesome. We're so excited to have you, Dr. Bailey. Let's go to our next caregiver moderator, Ray Blaylark, also no stranger to the Sickle Cell Community. Ray, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am happy to be here. Yes, I am Ray Blaylock and I am the caregiver or co-care provider to my 24-year-old son who is a warrior living with sickle cell disease. I'm extremely happy to be here. It's cold outside, but it's warm in here. Glad to have you. All right, the godfather, Dr. Wally Smith, a Cheat Codes alumnus. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. We're glad to have you. What's up, warriors? I love it. I love it. All right. We, that's, I mean, that's it, right? The Godfather doesn't need to say more than that. We're, we're good. Um, let's go next to Mr. Worldwide, Dr. Jeremy Estep, another Cheat Codes alumnus. Dr. Jeremy, welcome. Hello, everyone. It's so great to be back with you guys, Dr. Z and Dr. C and all of the illustrious Avengers today. Um, this is a great, um, great time to get together. And it's certainly fun to talk about this uh, amazing science. Thank you, Jeremy. Last but not least, an, another sort of big time Avenger here in the sickle cell landscape, Dr. Drew Campbell. Drew, welcome. Thank you everyone for allowing me to participate in this I think, great discussion. Great to see everyone. Uh, again, I'm happy to contribute to the knowledge in the community. I'm, I'm humbled. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right. We have a lot to cover. We have a lot to cover. We're going to have to run through this and we're going to have to full court press the whole time. So everybody be ready to sweat and hustle a little bit to get this knowledge out to the warriors. I'm going to pass it though to Dr. Bailey, because I want Dr. Bailey to introduce the concept a little bit here of what, why we actually have come together to do this and what we're, what we're hoping to accomplish. Thank you. And I love this concept. We were uh, Dr. Z, you and I, we were sort of on the same page, but in different areas wanting to do something very similar where there are amazing sickle cell conferences that occur around the world and there's fantastic science that comes from it, but patients never hear that. And what we are missing is an opportunity for physicians, for scientists, researchers, patients, caregivers to sit around and talk about what just happened. What did I just hear? Did you see that amazing science? And so we are excited to be sponsored by Agios in order to present 
this podcast as part of our citizen scientists unpacking the science of sickle cell initiative that we are um, unrolling for 2021. So we're glad to be brought together to talk about this and to talk about all the cool science at our most recent meeting, the first that we're covering, ASH of 2020. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Bailey, for that. Um, so, so with that, let, let's jump right into it, guys. And I, th I thought that we could kick off this session of what just happened with, with starting by talking about the area that's really hot and buzzing right now, which is, which is curative therapy, right? We know there's a lot going on. Um, this is obviously is an area of immense attention currently. The rigor of science and the way clinical trials are done in order to protect people is showing itself, right? We're showing how we go through clinical trials in such a rigorous fashion. Um, but I think some of the data that was presented at ASH is really important to share with the warrior community. And for that, I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Callahan first to, to introduce the first abstract of discussion. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Z. So we're going to talk today about a number of presentations from the recent American Society of Hematology meeting. And this is sort of our Super Bowl in hematology. I mean, we have 25,000 researchers, doctors, um, healthcare providers, advocates, everybody from all around the world uh, join in this meeting. And it's often where we see the best science come out. It's the biggest, it's the biggest stage. And so the um, people who are putting out science want to have it shown on that big stage. Um, so we're going to talk today about some curative therapies. We're going to talk about some pipeline drugs. We're going to talk about some advances with therapies we already have. Um, I think it, sh it should be said, though, this is all research. So a lot of it is things that are going to be important in the future, hopefully, um, but they might not be available now, or if they are, they're through clinical trials. And as with everything we talk about here, this is for education. Um, it's to provide the warriors information, but decisions about your medical care you should make with your doctor. So hopefully you learn some interesting things here that you go talk to your doctor about in your, your home team, your medical team. So I'm going to kick it off talking about curative therapies. And I think uh, Dr. Campbell and I are going to talk about three um, great presentations from the ASH meeting. But I, I want to take a step back and talk about what are curative therapies. So right now we already have some approved curative therapies. And most of them involve replacing the stem cells in our bone marrow. So we have stem cells in our bone marrow that um, grow baby red blood cells that turn into um, the red blood cells that circulate in our blood. And if you have sickle cell, those make sickle hemoglobin and, and you have sickling. So there's a lot of treatments that replace those stem cells. Um, some of them are bone marrow transplant, and we might do a bone marrow transplant where we take your sibling's bone marrow, your brother or sister, and um, use their bone marrow to replace yours so you make non-sickle cells. Now they're doing some things called haploidentical where you might be able to use somebody who half matches you like one of your parents or, or even unrelated transplants. But one problem with all of these is you need to find a match. The match is never perfect, so it can always attack your body a little bit and you can have something called graft versus host disease. And most of our warriors don't have a good match. Um, so they're not eligible for these therapies. With that in mind, they've created these new therapies where they take your own stem cells out and then manipulate them. They use usually a virus to put a gene in or edit some of your genes so that your cells make either uh, variant hemoglobin or fetal hemoglobin um, so that it prevents sickling. The first study I'm gonna talk about today is one of these that uses a really clever uh, new technique 
to edit these stem cells so that they make fetal hemoglobin. So this was a study from a company called CRISPR Therapeutics um, and Vertex, who helped sponsor the study. And it was called Safety and Efficacy of CTX001. So that's the new therapy. In patients with transfusion-dependent beta thalassemia and sickle cell anemia, early results from the CLIMB-THAL-111 trial and CLIMB-SCD-121 studies of CRISPR-Cas9-modified CD34 hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. So that's a mouthful, but we're going to break it down. Mm-hmm. So as, as a little bit of background, um, when we're babies in, in utero, we make fetal hemoglobin and that hemoglobin doesn't sickle. But when we're born, we switch to our adult hemoglobin. And if you have the sickle cell mutation, then um, that's when you start to have sickling. There's a group of people who have a mutation in a, a thing called BCL11 that's involved in that switch. It turns on a switch so that you stop making the fetal and start making the adult hemoglobin. There's a group of people that have a mutation in that and their switch doesn't turn. And so their cells continue to make fetal hemoglobin even after they're um, older. And that can be protective in sickle cell. That's why we use hydroxyurea and we know people who make more fetal hemoglobin are more protective. So in this study, what they tried to do is take the stem cells out and use this thing called CRISPR. And CRISPR has been relatively new. There there are things that are found in bacteria and help bacteria not get uh, infected by viruses. And what they are is clustered, regular, interspaced, short palindromic repeats, but that's too much for me. So I, I just think of it as like a little, a little template that sticks to a specific spot in your DNA. And then attached to it is a Cas9, which I think of as like a pair of scissors. So that CRISPR goes in, it binds to the specific spot in your DNA, the scissors cut it and make a mutation there. And in this case, the, the CRISPR goes to this BCL11 and then the scissors cut it. And then you have this mutation like the people who make fetal hemoglobin. So the, the, this study is a, a phase one study, which is a, an early study to see if something is, is safe and possible really. Um, and what they did is they used a, a lentivirus, which is a, a kind of um, virus that can infect people. And it's a special virus because it takes the DNA from the virus and puts it into your DNA. And then that makes this CRISPR, Cas9, that then goes and and changes your cells, changes the DNA and BCL11. And then they do basically the same thing we do with a bone marrow transplant. You get a preparatory regimen that contains busulfan, which is a chemotherapy to get rid of your own stem cells. And then they give you back your stem cells that now have that change. Um, So in this study, um, they enrolled people who were 18 to 35 years old who had thalassemia or sickle cell, and they had to have at least two pain episodes a year. And then they gave them some medicine called Plerixifore to make their stem cells come out. And you used a machine um, called Pheresis that you might use if if you're getting blood transfusions um, to collect the stem cells. Then the the company used this CRISPR, um, the lentivirus and the CRISPR to, to change those stem cells. And then the patients were admitted and, and got this bone marrow transplant with their own cells back. So there were two sickle cell patients on this study. So this is a really early study. Um, they had seven and seven and a half pain episodes a year over the previous couple of years. There are also five thalassemia patients. And in the thalassemia patients, they don't make hemoglobin well. So they wanted to see if by switching them to the fetal hemoglobin, they could make hemoglobin 
and not need transfusions. It's early days, but this went really well. So all of the patients are at least three months out. Some of them are about a year and a half out. And so they, they all underwent this procedure It engrafted. So that means the new stem cells came in, they took up residence and started making cells. And that took about four weeks, three or four weeks for, um, for both of these. But the, the punchline is that after up to 15 months in the, in the thalassemia patients, they're not needing transfusions. They have high hemoglobins. And in the sickle cell patients, um, about half of their hemoglobin is fetal hemoglobin now, and they're not having pain episodes. So this was a, a really exciting presentation at the ASH meeting. Um, they pick about six of the best out of you know tens of thousands of uh, presentations that they say are the plenaries. They're the best ones. This was one of those. Um, and I think it really is exciting science and, and really has the potential to help a lot of people. So um, with that, I'll, I'll open it up to this panel for discussion and uh, can check me on big words I used and, and uh, clear anything up that wasn't clear. You talked about so many things and, and it's so such an interesting science, but you hit on something that um, I've often wondered about. And that is you kind of uh, talked about persistent high fetohemoglobin as it's commonly known. And when you talk about that, you also mentioned that they typically don't have as many crises or as many complications. And yet sometimes people who were told that they had persistent high fetohemoglobin in their childhood, we see them almost catching up to those who oftentimes have uh, more crises. Can you explain how that would impact a study like this? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, so there's a lot of variability in fetal hemoglobin. So some people make just a little bit, some people make more. And we've seen that the more you make, probably the, the less symptoms of sickle cell you might have. And we use fetal hemoglobin for that reason to try to increase it. There's a really small group of people who have really high levels of fetal hemoglobin. They maybe have 30, 40, 50%. Um, some of them from different genetic variations they have. And they are um, protected from a lot of the complications of sickle cell. But as you mentioned, these aren't magic bullets. Um, they don't prevent everything. And there's still um, some sickle cells and sickling going on. And over time, that can cause damage. So as you said, you know, as people get into their older years, um, that damage accumulates. I think Dr. Smith says, you know, the hum of sickle cell starts when you're born and accumulates over time. And uh, I think this is an example that, you know, having a high fetal hemoglobin protects you some, but uh, not completely. I think it protects you more if it's in a lot of cells. Um, so sometimes you have high fetal hemoglobin in one group of cells, but not in another. And the, the ones that don't have high fetal hemoglobin are sickling and causing problems. So one thing that's really important is to look at, you know, how many of your cells have fetal hemoglobin in them. And that's something they looked at on this study. Um, and on a lot of the other gene therapy studies. And I think there is some variation there, but in this study, it looks like most of the cells have a lot of fetal hemoglobin. So I think that's promising. I think, like you said, though, you know, the effects long-term um, are going to be important and we don't know. I mean, we have people are about 15 months out now, you know, how long is this going to last? 
Um, are we still going to see sickle, sickle cell related problems, hopefully to a much lesser extent, but will we see them? I think all of those things are, you know, why we do these studies and why we need to follow people for a really long time afterwards. Excellent. Excellent. And then you also talked about that the, the qualifications for participating in the study was if you had had two or more pain episodes um, in the past year. Now we know once you hit, you know, uh, uh, that young adulthood, you really don't, you're not in the hospital. You, you look for ways to avoid having to be in the hospital. So was that hospitalization or was that self-reported? That's a good question. And in this study, it was pain episodes that required medical um, utilization. So these were people who were admitted to the hospital um, more than two times a year. And in in the um, two patients who were on the study, um, one of them was admitted 14 times in the previous two years, one 15 times. Um, so they had a, a really a lot of uh, pain episodes. I, I think, you know, the principle of this would work in people who don't have pain episodes, but always on these studies, we, we have this principle we call equipoise, which is, you know, there's always some risk to a study and we don't want to put people at risk who might not benefit from it. So if you're not having pain episodes and you hope that this, this new therapy is going to improve pain episodes, you don't get that benefit. But if you take a patient on the study who has a lot of pain episodes, then they could potentially get some benefit from it. And hopefully that balances with the risk. You know, I was just going to give you guys a little bit of insight. You know, Ash was virtual, but this is an abstract that caused a lot of buzz. People were buzzing about this one. This is the one that got press attention. This is the one that people were talking about. So, you know, being a hematologist, watching this unfold in the sickle cell space, that feeling was unbelievable. And I really wish we got to experience that in person, but, but we didn't. And, and I think we had a lot of conversations internally as sickle cell physicians, right? So certainly me and Dr. Mike did, but I'm curious, I'm curious just to hear from, you know, Jeremy, Wally, Drew, you guys, when you first saw these data, what, what are you thinking? So, yo, Mike, uh, you're mucking around with my DNA. <laughs> Is that safe? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Valid. the question of the study, right? Um, we, this CRISPR technology is, is pretty new. Um, one concern is that, you know, we think that the CRISPR goes to this one spot in your DNA and makes a cut. Could it accidentally go to other spots and make cuts that don't help you? Um, that's a, that's a risk with these things. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's why we're doing these studies to see if it's safe. Now I, I should say, you know, things don't just jump into phase one clinical trials in people. Um, there's always a lot of um, preclinical work. There's work in cells, in culture. There's work in animals. Um, and, and we don't jump into human trials in, until we think there's a prospect that it can be done safely. But until you do it in people, people aren't mice, people aren't dogs. We see different results um, when, when you try it in people. And, and I, you know, I think it's going to be really important that we track these studies really closely and make sure that they continue to be safe before we start doing it as a, as a clinical. And isn't it true that they're going to follow people for like 15 years or something like that to make sure it's safe? It's so scientists, scientists can take a minute. And for our uh, patients and caregivers who are not science nerds, take a minute and let's take a step back and CRISPR. So we're talking about CRISPR, which is a type of gene therapy. And specifically, what made this ooey wow is this technology when it first came out several years ago now, it, it provides a way 
to it manipulates something that's seen in nature where uh, microbes can capture snippets of the invader DNA and then target and destroy it. And what this does is it uses that Cas9 to find those little snippets and it can guide it directly to the right spot right. to make the cuts. And so this is a way of guiding exactly where you want to make that change in the DNA. And so um, can you talk a little bit about why that was such a cool and revolutionary and what it is, how that separates it from some other types of gene therapy that we, we see? Yeah, I mean, this really was a big advance. Um, they won the Nobel Prize last year, actually, for discovering these CRISPRs. And I, I think it it's an amazing tool. It allows you to really efficiently. So we had other tools that could go in and, and do this kind of thing, but they, they couldn't do it repeatedly. Um, they couldn't do it across all the cells. Um, so this one was a lot more efficient, and they're also a lot easier to make. Um, so there are some other technologies and some of them are being used like this. And, and the other thing that's, you know, a potential for this is you could go in and edit. You could go in and cut where you want to, and then you could fix where you cut. So we call that edit repair. So for instance, sickle cell, everybody has the same mutation. You could go in and cut out that mutation and then repair it. We're not quite there yet, um, but it's really exciting. A lot of the other gene therapies, and I think Drew's going to talk about a couple of them in a second, are, are doing something we call gene addition. And this is a little cruder. You're just using the virus to put in a hemoglobin gene. It's still amazing, but it's, it's a little bit cruder. And so this CRISPR allows us to, to do some, um, you know, I think really elegant things like go in and edit BCL and increase fetal hemoglobin. It's, it's, it's after Smith was talking about, this is, you know, one of the concerns I think with, with all these gene therapies is kind of we call off-target effects. And Dr. Callahan talked about that. So we are excited about the science and technology, but you know, safety is very important. And so one of the things that, you know, the reason we want to look at this over so many years is um, this is novel, you know, this is experimental, but you know, it's very limited experience in using this for, for any type of human disease. So we have to, over time, just keep things, make sure that the CRISPR is keeping things in check. Your body's keeping things in check with the CRISPR. There's no long-term side effects as this is kind of replication, replication, if you will, in your stem cells. So this is, this is revolutionary. So as this is happening over time, we have to follow everything, you know, the side effects, the course of the sickle cell disease, so this is not a short-term, this is a long-term process. And then we'll talk about this in the other you know, types of gene therapy. And since we're talking about all of these novel or new uh, sciences, is all of that protection, it's that, how does that fit into medical ethics? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think okay. uh, Dr. Estep was on Cheat Codes episode 16, and we, we spent a really long time um, having a discussion about Tuskegee and about what an mm -hmm. institutional review board does and really all of the elements that we try to put in place to make sure that we're doing a study um, that can answer the question we want, but also do it in the safest way possible, in the most ethical way possible, that we're choosing patients for the study fairly, that we're um, not excluding people, we're not, you know, using a 
vulnerable population as guinea pigs and really try to do these things in, in the safest, most ethical and, and effective way possible. So I, I would say if you want a whole lot more depth on that episode 16 of Cheat Codes. Excellent. And I think it feels like the most important thing is that this is not, we ethics has evolved. This is not the history that was present many, many years ago, mm -hmm. but there are actually laws in place that help to protect exactly. those who participate. And, and, and that's, a, that's a really good segue to Drew's next abstract. So we yes. know that those laws that were in place, the rigor of science has obviously resulted in um, some changes to the gene therapy scene as we know it. Drew, you want to take us into that discussion a little bit? Of course, of course. So first thing I want to say um, is that, you know, a lot of these results that we're talking about, talking about are as of, you know, like, for example, the, the Bluebird Bio clinical trial was uh, reported at, as of March 2020, and the Aravant gene therapy trial. That was presented at a, as of July 2020. So that's very important, especially in present day, because obviously there's been developments with the lentivirus gene therapy. So let's, let's talk about this. I think we had a nice introduction from Dr. Callahan. So the first um, gene therapy abstract I'm gonna talk about um, is the Bluebird Bio one. Um, this was presented, the title was, you know, results from the ongoing phase one, two hemoglobin 206 group C, just the name of the trial study of the lentiglobin or sickle cell gene therapy. Unlike what Dr. Callahan was talking about with the CRISPR, this is the gene addition, meaning that they're actually using a virus called the lentivirus, similar to the HIV virus, to where they remove the HIV-like um, proteins out of the lentivirus, and they, and they actually put in elements of this a gene addition. So it allows the, this lentivirus, if you will, um, to incorporate a new hemoglobin, not the sickle cell hemoglobin, but a normal-like hemoglobin. So the goal is to increase the amount of non-sickle hemoglobin, which, is, which we'll talk about, that will decrease um, sickle cell-related transfusions, complications, and of course, most importantly, clinically, less pain crisis, less organ damage over time. So they, um, so in this study, they included uh, patients 12 to 50 years of age with a history of uh, sickle cell, of course, stroke or severe vaso-occlusive events. And what they did is they looked at either pain, patients with increased pain episodes or acute chest syndrome. Also uh, in this trial, they monitored for um, our usual blood cell count, um, also markers of hemolysis. So like for your reticulocyte count, and you, you know that uh, we also measure things like LDH and bilirubin, that's release when your red bloods, when your sickle cells don't last that long, and also pain. And then also they, look, which they looked at also, they reported on patient reported outcomes, which, which essentially is kind of these survey questions um, from the promise questionnaire, we won't go into detail, but to see how much pain you have um, during different parts of the study, different times of the study, and of course, adverse events. So essentially, in this group C of the trial, I won't go into detail, but essentially out of the 40 patients, they reported on 25 out of the 40 that were treated with this lentivirus gene therapy for a median. Median is another way of doing average for a median of 12 months, so about a year. 
It ranged from 2.8 months up into 24.8 months. So the results were the following. So they first they recorded on, well, how well is the lentivirus transplant is, how well is it working, right? So again, they're taking the patient stem cells, right? And then they're using the lentivirus outside of the body to infect the patient stem cells. And then they put it, then they infuse it back into the sickle cell patient. Okay, so one of the, they, they actually, for just any bone marrow transplant, they want to determine how well white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets um, actually we call engraft. And what we mean by engraft being, they mean, we mean that how high the white blood cell, it, it, it goes, it gets, um, it, de it decreases to almost zero and it comes right back up. So that's the, they measure the number of white cells you have and also platelets, platelets helps with them. Um, so that drops down and then um, they measure after transplant how much time it takes for it to go up. So the neutrophil engraftment, the time for engraftment was 19 days, um, the median time, average time, and the platelets was 28 days. But more importantly, how does it relate to sickle cell disease? So in all the patients, um, they stop blood transfusions by 90 days post-transplant. So basically, after the lentivirus treatment of each patient, so 90 days, nobody needed any blood transfusion. In 16 patients that they could follow, that was followed up for greater than six, greater than six months, okay, the average hemoglobin um, was around, it was, was 11.5 for the median. The range was 9.6 to 16, so as high as 16, pretty impressive. And the transfer gene hemoglobin, which they called, this gene addition hemoglobin is called T87Q. You'll hear me say that, right? This T87Q contribution of the hemoglobin was about half of what the total hemoglobin. So the average hemoglobin was 11.5, right? The, the gene therapy, gene addition hemoglobin contributed an average of 5.2. And the sickle cell hemoglobin contributed to a hemoglobin of 6.1. So it's about half. So you almost have half and half. The, the other thing they did to make sure that the gene therapy was truly expressed in these red blood cells of sickle cell patients, they did these, we call assays. So outside of the lab, they took the reds, they took the patient's blood cells and they measured how well that this gene therapy, this gene addition hemoglobin 787, 787Q, you know, how much of it was expressed. And they found that it was almost, it was we call pan-expression. So in almost all the red blood cells, there was their assay showed that this gene therapy addition hemoglobin was expressed in almost all the red blood cells in nine patients who, who had this gene therapy greater than six months. Okay. And then 90% of the red blood cells had some level of this, this gene, hemo, this uh, T87Q hemoglobin by 18 months. And then they looked at this hemolysis markers, which we talked about, you know, sickle cells, they don't last, they last, sickle cells only last like, you know, 20, 30 days. So there's just increased turnover of red blood cells. So you have an increase in hemolysis, right? So after the transplant, after the gene therapy, they show normalization of LDH, reticulocytes, and bilirubin. So in terms of the most important outcomes was, these, the, was pain crisis, right? 
Um, so they broke it down into vasoclusive crisis, which is pain, painful episodes, and acute chest syndrome. Okay, so then what they did was they actually added them. So prior to treatment, there was a average we call annualized for every year uh, vasoclusive and acute chest syndrome rate total of four in the two years prior to treatment. So every year there was at least four episodes of pain, crisis, or acute chest syndrome. Post-treatment, that number went down to two. So, and in fact, there was, uh, based on the results, they said there was a 99.5% mean reduction in annualized vasoclusive and acute chest, acute chest syndrome rates post-transplant. And they showed this really nice figure showing that so essentially what they showed with this, um, in addition to that, they also found that the promise scores, these pain intensity scores also re was reduced 12 months post-treatment in five patients who said that they had pain intensity scores that were worse prior to going to transplant. And then another five patients said, you know, going to transplant, you know, their, their, uh, their scores were near or better the, than the population. Uh, was about the same. So there was a half of them said there was improvement. The other half said it stayed better. Okay. Um, and then, and that was, and then the, the, the severe adverse events, you know, things have changed now, but at yeah. the time, right. Uh, the most common, you know, side effect was just secondary to the, to the, uh, um, to the, we call preparative regimen, which I kind of glossed over initially because I know we'll talk about this. Is that you know that you know as part of this treatment, everyone gets a little bit of chemotherapy so the transplant can work. They get what's called busulfan. Um, so as part of that, and and they the reason they give the busulfan to the patient prior to getting the gene therapy is because the, the belief is that sickle cell patients' bone marrow is a little inflamed, even even getting a self transplant. So they cool it down by giving. So both busulfan, which is the chemotherapy regimen they use for, for transplant patients, to cool down inflammation, so they so the gene so they can accept the their their stem cells that have the gene therapy in it, right? So with that, when you get chemotherapy, you get you get uh, stomatitis we call it with inflammation inside the mouth, and also you can get neutropenia with the white cells dropping down. So that was the most common, we call grade three and above adverse events. That was non-hematologic. The other was, the other serious events were very small. And, and, and that, uh, those of severe, and those um, neutropenia tumatitis, that was in 11 patients. And then nausea, opioid withdrawal and vomiting were just in two. Three patients had lentiglobin virus, non-related grade less than grade two adverse events. These are different gradings. And then um, there was one death they thought at the time that was unrelated to the Lenti virus. It was greater than 18 months post-treatment, which we know happened in July of, this, of 2020, post-treatment in a patient with significant baseline sickle cell-related cardiopulmonary disease. Um, there have been no events of graft failure, vector-related re replication, competent Lenti virus, or clonal dominance. So we know that has changed. So basically in this trial, this study, they said that the lentiglobin virus gene therapy resulted in pancellular, almost all red blood cells expression and reduced sickle cell 
expression, okay, that's, that's um, decreased the complications that you would see with sickle cell disease, but also they describe decreased, uh, which had an impact on the pathophysiology or the impact on sickle cell disease by reducing sickle cell sickling and reducing hemolysis, but increasing total hemoglobin. And with this, they also said a complete resolution of vasoclusive crisis and acute chest syndrome was observed in almost all patients 90, with a 99.5% reduction in annualized for every year of, of vasoclusive and acute chest syndrome post-treatment. And there was also a decrease in reported pain score intensity. So bottom line is from our standpoint, it was very exciting. We were very excited about this trial, okay? Now, we know that there's been a significant, there's been changes that's happened recently, um, which I will pause right now because I know that that can be another discussion. The, the trials have been so amazing and there's fantastic information that comes out of both of it. You said one thing that I know we're going to get, and I'm sure Ray can, can attest to that we're going to get and we're going to hear again. And so often it gets glazed right over and it is simply um, HIV-like lentivirus. And so sort of one of the reasons that HIV was such a difficult disease and such a hard one to get was because it is so good at injecting its virus into cells. But that thing that made it difficult to treat and just a nightmare of a disease is the same thing that becomes useful in this because the virus is removed and now we've got this vessel that is fantastic at getting what we put in it into a cell. And so when we talk about that, just to clarify, because it has come up uh, repeatedly, this is not an AIDS causing thing. This is not going to cause AIDS and HIV. It's simply that it's using that technique that is so good at getting its message into the cells. So I wanna say it um, just to pause right there to just clarify that to those listening. We have so many wonderful things that we wanna talk about. So I wanted to just um, get a really brief description. We won't be able to go into all of the details with the next trial, but I wanted to hear some of your thoughts about that. Um, some of your what were your initial reactions to this study and, and Ray, your comments as well? Yeah, so I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, sometimes we can hear certain words that feel triggering, right? And, and we're yeah. not sure. There's a lot of history behind there. So yeah. has that been used before? Do we understand if lentiviruses have a history in science? Because, or is this the first time and this is new and they just decided sickle cell disease was going to be the disease they try it out on? It's not new. Um, the the lentiviral platform has has been used in multiple other diseases such as hemophilia B, um, X-linked skids, yeah. uh, macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't that sickle cell disease patients were selected right. to have this platform tried on them. It was that this platform is just exceptionally powerful with respect to being able to, to insert genes and to, and to change information. I, I use the analogy in clinic all the time of, it's like taking a, an old beat up pickup truck um, that is very useful, 
um, and drop it and, and dropping a V8 engine in it um, because it you can just it changes the way that it that it functions. It just becomes very much useful. So no one's ever got HIV from using this science. No, no. no. And I think it's important to just point out that there's a long history to this. We often hear that our community will think, well, we're being used as guinea pigs. And there is actually a very long history to this. And it did not start in sickle cell. It started in other illnesses. And even the way it's being used now was done first in thalassemia. And so um, I think it's important to talk about that. Sickle cell is a fantastic model illness because we know exactly its molecular basis. And so we can then use that And sickle cell has actually been connected to a number of scientific advances, including a previous Nobel Prize in chemistry. Because we understand how it works, we can then use that in other ways. But Dr. Campbell, I'm wondering if you could um, rather quickly compare this to to Aruvant. Aruvant? And Dr. Drew, could you give us like a just like a super high level difference uh, on what what What's the difference between Bluebird and Aravent? That'd be great. So, so the difference between the Aravent um, gene therapy versus the lenti, they both use lentivirus. So, but the, the difference is the approach with processing the stem cells and preparating the patients to receive the therapy. So the difference is, here's a difference. Number one, the Aravent is um, using, um, initially they were using gamma globin, the hemoglobin A gene, um, which that is the normal hemoglobin, that's Bluebird Bio. The Aravent is now, they're switching, they're using the gamma globin gene. That's what's used fetal hemoglobin. So they're trying, to, they, they're inserting the gamma globin fetal hemoglobin versus the A. The second is that they use reduced intensity gene therapy. So for example, Dibisofen is kind of a, a high dose, if you will, a higher dose intensity treatment to the patient prior to the transplant. The Aravent gene therapy, 1801, they use a reduced dose chemotherapy. And the reason behind that, the, the rationale behind it is they want to, uh, that allows them to have less toxicity, right? So if you give more chemotherapy prior to doing the therapy transplant, you can get more infections. You have a lowering of your blood counts, right? So that is the huge, that's the two difference. So the, that's uh, the, we call myeloblade approaches. And then also the uh, Aravent um, um, gene therapy probably can be used in more lower resource setting theoretically because you have less complica- you have less uh, concern about infection because you're not you're not suppressing the bone marrow to the point where you can get um, high risk of you know you can get infections right. you know so so that's that's really the main difference and in the Aravent trial um, it was in there in, uh, for Ash what they just briefly talked about was interesting they reported on three patients that they're using this uh, reduced intensity trial and really the bottom line was this is very early in the process what they found was that um, in the first two patients they were treated with the, they treated with uh, the initial lentivirus ARU-1805 with a uh, manufacturing process of the gene therapy, right? But then they presented an improved way of, of fact, uh, manufacturing, if you will, or optimizing the stem cell collection with the lentivirus production and improved transfer of 
the stem cells that have the lentivirus into the patient. That's really what they talked about. And what they found essentially um, was that um, the patient, the first two patients who got treated the previous process with this ARU 1804, um, they fared pretty well. It was a 30, 34 year old and a 24 year old that got treated, got transplanted. They got really good early engraftment with the white blood cells and platelets we talked about. But at, at the same time, the, the S, the, we call the fetal hemoglobin that they measured was, was reasonable. But what they reported was that the third patient um, had this fetal hemoglobin called G16D, right? With the new processing, which called, they call it process two, of the stem cells with this new gene therapy. And they, what they found was, they, what they did is they actually had more gene therapy cells uh, into the third patient. Um, they also had, what they, they measured more, we call it lentivirus copy number, it's called VCN. Um, that was also found. And what they found also is with this new process, uh, total hemoglobin went from 22% in the first two patients that they tried this in and to, to as high as 35% in the third patient with the new manufacturing process of the stem cells. Um, so what they found essentially was with this new processing of this uh, patient, the new process, manufacturing processing of the stem cells with the lentivirus in patient three could lead to even two to four times higher engraftment of the lenti of the transduced, we call of the, uh, of the um, new fetal hemoglobin expressing cells. Number two, um, they feel that the reduced intensity holds significant promise because it has a favorable safety profile in patients with severe sickle cell disease. So really, don't, that's really the big difference. It's early, it was an early um, release of their three patients with promise of the new processing. That's pretty much it. It's called ARU 1805, 18, 1801. So they plan to enroll at least 10 patients that I saw in the um, clinical trials at Gov. So it is promising. The Bluebird bio, um, the new news about the Bluebird bio that was that's just come to light. There are so many new and interesting sciences coming. Um, how does that play into where Bluebird bio is currently, and how other fields and other other uh, scientists are are utilizing that to further their understanding of this technology? Yeah. So I, I think that these two abstracts um, highlight some of the the very huge upside and promise of this particular type of technology. But the, um, as you mentioned, there was some results, you know, recently reported out from Bluebird Bio that there may be some safety concerns um, that they have identified. And we'll just kind of have to wait and see how that plays out. I'm sure that the, the company will be very transparent about the findings and we're all anxiously awaiting those, those results. But, you know, there are 15, 20 different companies that are looking at multiple different avenues of being able to do this. And the for me, that's the promise of this, is that the, the true curative intent gene therapy is now on the horizon. Like we have been hearing about it and hoping for it um, for decades. And it's, it's almost there where you can almost taste it. Um, and for me, that is the long-term promise of this, because hopefully within my career, we'll be able to offer these curative intent therapies to a large number of patients. But for, 
right now, what it means to me is that we're, we need to work with our communities and we need to work with our patients to ensure that they stay as healthy as we can keep them. Um, as was brought up earlier with you know, Dr. Wally Smith saying the hum of this disease starts at birth. So we start seeing you know, not only just the acute complications, but end organ damage very early on in life. And right now, the things that we can do with that are for therapies like hydroxyurea and grizzlizumab and some of these other things that we can use to modify the disease. And that's what's exciting about where we're going with this. This one technology almost gives birth to so many more, so much more understanding. And so other companies and other other industries are, are, take, are paying attention. So where do they then go from what they're learning? Where do we go from there? Yeah, so I mean, the, the hope is, is that the these, the initial things that we are seeing now are basically just telling us that, yes, this is possible to do. Um, we can do it on a, a fairly large scale. And we're, we're in the process now of making sure that what we're doing is safe and effective long term, right? The next steps are to try to be able to do it in as many people as we can if it's safe and effective, um, which means we have to do it cheaper. We have to do it with less toxicity. Um, and we have to be able to do it in places that maybe not have all of the uh, all of the support of some of the academic hospitals that's currently happening. So who's doing it? Who's who's already started that process? So there are certainly collaboratives out there from across academia and through the NIH, the American Society of Hematology, that are focusing on those very issues. Awesome. Well, guys, that was a fantastic discussion and a wonderful close to part one of of this series. You know, if you're a warrior listening to this and you think there's somebody who could benefit from hearing what was discussed on this podcast, share it with them. Uh, like and subscribe. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and follow Dr. C at and me at Imagineer. Imagineer. Follow at Cheat Codes Pod on Instagram and uh, keep living well with Sickle Cell. Uh, that's all we've got for you this week. We'll catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>